Hello and welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Be Uncluttered. I'm Tara Tuttle and with me is Rebecca Mazzino and together we are going to help you on your journey to a life free of clutter. Hi and welcome to this week's episode. This is part two of the Stoicism and Clutter episode with Donald Robertson. If you haven't yet listened to the first episode in this series, Stoicism and Clutter, part one, then I recommend you actually go back to that one first before you listen to this one, just so that you're a little bit up to speed. So let's get started. Now, another thing I wanted to talk about was this this idea of living in accordance with nature. So yeah. one of their, their goal in life, I guess, and it's not necessarily the eudonomia, the, the but it is to live in accordance with nature. And they don't mean like forest bathing or organic gardening. They mean that you should be living in a way that make that means you accept that things are out of your control. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that, again, I'm really interested in as, and which is why I'm mm-hmm. talking about now is, is this whole idea of acceptance. And, and I read a book a long time mm-hmm. ago that gave me a clue about acceptance and how it could make me happier. And I've really clung to that. And actually, I mentioned to you before we started recording about a tattoo. <laughs> and it's not a yeah. stoic tattoo to disappoint you, but I actually have a tattoo of a jellyfish on my torso. And that tattoo is basically to remind me not to fight nature, not to fight what is happening, but to right. go with the flow. And you can't fight a jellyfish. Well, a jellyfish can't fly, fight the tide. You know, they, they can't. Oh. They, there's, there's not much they can do about it. They go with the flow. Um, and, of course, my daughter made cracks about, oh, it just means that you value spinelessness and brainlessness. But, um, <laughs> you know, those those jokes aside, uh, th- this is something that, that I was sort of really, um, really interested in. And so that is also something that the Stoics were quite interested in as well, wasn't it? Yeah, jellyfish. No, they weren't <laughs> interested in jellyfish. Now, the fact they ever mentioned jellyfish. They do say something about an the octopus. squid. Though, yeah, they, they mention yeah. squid, don't they? Because, uh, I mean, Mano Marcus talks about the squid dye and dyed in purple quite a bit. Yeah. Well, that's from a snail, actually. I see snail. Oh, snail, sorry. Um, that they, yeah, they, this is like a metaphor in the philosophy. But uh, so you can't – acceptance was the, the question. It is actually living in agreement with nature. That That is um, – I mean, it is eudaimonia, sorry, I should say. So the goal of life, they say eudaimonia is living in agreement with nature. But what they mean by that, because they're they're terrible for these uh, paradoxes, is they say this is, what we mean is kind of the opposite of what a lot of people think we mean by that. So they say a lot of people would think living in agreement with nature just means just doing whatever you want and just like stuffing your face and kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, following your kind of baser, appetites and desires i guess and the stoics say no because human beings are inherently conscious rational thinking language using beings right Mm -hmm. and i actually i totally agree with i think they're absolutely right about this they say you're denying your nature if you don't use reason like to Mm -hmm. its full capacity they say zeus the gods gave you this ability this incredible gift to use language to observe yourself and to think things through logically and it's our obligation to actually use that. It's like the gods gave us this toolbox and like we're not bothering to use any of the tools that they handed us. Like, and they say, they gave us reason. We're supposed to be using it properly. And if we used reason properly and consistently, then we would flourish. We would achieve the, the virtue of wisdom, they think, and also the other cardinal virtues. But a big part of it, they believe, is accepting. If we live rationally, then we would accept uh, the fact 
that many things in life are beyond our direct control. Mm. And we would be clearer about the distinction between what's up to us and what isn't. And we would take also more responsibility for things that are actually under our voluntary control in life, which would mainly be our intentions and our voluntary thoughts and judgments. So in psychotherapy, it would take me a while actually to give a, I'd love to give specific examples, but that would take a while. No, you can. We've got a bit of time. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do a, let's do a really quick deep dive into anxiety, mm-hmm. my friend, Like, because this is my specialist subject, right? Cool. So when clients come in and they have anxiety, I, one of the first things I normally say to them is the core of this problem is a failure to distinguish between automatic and voluntary thoughts, cognitions, right? Mm-hmm. So people usually really blur the distinction between these two things. And uh, anxiety, one of the one way of putting this is that we have what psychologists sometimes call a lump theory of anxiety. So our culture has a very simplistic idea of emotion, and we talk about having anxiety or feeling anxious. What if what we call anxiety takes many different forms and there are significant differences between PTSD anxiety, Mm -hmm. social anxiety, animal phobias, OCD anxiety? What if these are really significantly different from one another? And also, even within those forms of anxiety, What happens if there are several ingredients that are fundamentally distinct from one another, but we just kind of lump it all together when we're talking about it? We would be very confused people when it comes to dealing with our emotions, but that's where we're at. We have this very simplistic idea. We talk about our emotions. We talk about anxiety in an overly simplistic way that actually makes it really difficult for us to process our emotions and deal with them. So first thing is in therapy, we usually say this is panic attack, this is PTSD, this is social. You know, we have to distinguish between different species of anxiety. But within anxiety itself, within each of those species, we have to say the anxiety consists, first of all, in voluntary and in involuntary elements. Now, that's crucial because... When people are struggling emotionally, they're often trying too hard to suppress or conceal or control the involuntary aspects of anxiety, right? And that's toxic. That's lowercase stoicism, actually, right? It's a stiff upper lip. So my heart starts to beat really fast. I try really hard to control my breathing. I try really hard to conceal it from other people. I kind of try and force myself to relax. Mm -hmm. Like So people try really hard to control these involuntary aspects of emotion. That usually just makes them worse, right? And it causes other problems in the long term. So in social anxiety, if I'm blushing or my hands are shaking and I'm trying really hard to control that, even though it's involuntary, I'm going to start to feel increasingly socially awkward because my efforts to do that are going to require that I pay more attention than normal to my own body and appearance. Mm -hmm. So that's going to heighten self-consciousness. And it's also going to increase what we call cognitive load. So I'm going to be thinking too much, basically. And that's going to make it hard for me to act spontaneously and to speak naturally. So in therapy, we do that by saying to clients, I want you to think really hard about what your face looks like and what your breathing is like, and then just tell me what you did yesterday. <laughs> and then they'll be like, uh, it's, uh, like it's hard, like it's yeah. distracting. I'm like, but this is what you do in conversations, right? So your way of coping with your anxiety is bound to make you feel socially awkward. 
People don't normally do that while they're talking. They normally just think about the other person and look at the other person and well, think and about what think they're saying. Think about the next. ideas. Trying, <laughs> yeah, yeah. think about what they're going to say, right? Um, and what you're doing is going to make you feel really awkward. So stop trying to control these involuntary aspects of emotion. It, it doesn't make sense. It's contradictory anyway. You need to learn to accept them as indifferent. As the Stoics say, we need to view them as neither good nor bad, mm-hmm. like to view them as natural and indifferent. And then the other side is that people neglect to control the voluntary aspects. Now, I want to say a little bit more about this because it's actually very important to decluttering, incidentally, right? Okay and simplifying your life. So clients come into therapy, they're wasting all their time and energy, banging their heads against a wall, trying to control the involuntary aspects of anxiety, but actually making them worse in doing so. And they go, I'm trying really hard, but they're usually completely neglecting to take control over um, high-level voluntary cognition. So we call that worry or rumination, is how we refer to it in therapy. So those are the voluntary aspects of emotion. So people tend to think they're, they're worrying and rumination is out of control. I can't stop worrying. Mm. But actually, it's easy to stop worrying. Like, worrying is the voluntary component. And, you know, so people will usually massively underestimate how much voluntary control they have over worrying. It takes time to worry. Mm. And any process that takes place over time is usually interruptible for a star. Mm. Like, everything about it makes it inherently easier to control than the spontaneous the automatic feelings that come into your mind so often in therapy we have to train people to realize that they've got more control over the process mm-hmm. of worrying than they would normally assume but often it's, it's quite simple because the way that we control worrying or stop doing it like i would say a, a kind of glib way of illustrating this would be to say to a client if you suppose you're sitting worrying about your clutter or whatever and then the phone rings and someone tells you you've won a million dollars in a lottery wouldn't you stop worrying and think about the <laughs> mm. like, and they go, well, yeah. And so like, actually it's voluntary, right? Or um, suppose you play football and the whistle goes and you have to start playing the game. Would you go, guys, you're going to have to wait for me because I'm worrying about <laughs> paying my bills and stuff like, could you just hold on for a minute while I finish worrying? No, you'd stop worrying and you go and play, right? Because you have voluntary control over it. And so people massively underestimate. We know there's a ton of research in this area, right? Now, this failure to distinguish between what's voluntary and what's involuntary and to struggle and bang your head against involuntary stuff and to neglect your responsibility like or the means of controlling voluntary stuff is really the heart of emotional vulnerability and a lot of mental health problems. Well, now, what's it got to do with clutter, Right. So I mentioned earlier, Marcus Aurelius said, you know, of anything you do, ask yourself, does this actually move me closer towards the goal of life or move me further away? Is it actually necessary or is it unnecessary in life? Mm-hmm. One of the things that we do a lot in therapy is to ask clients whether their worrying and rumination is necessary and how much time per day they spend doing it. So a lot of clients will say that they clutter up their day psychologically. Um, this is the essence of psychological clutter is people overthinking, overanalyzing, yeah. ruminating, or worrying. For sure. And so clients who have clinical depression or generalized anxiety disorder or other anxiety disorders will tell me they spend all day worrying or they'll say six or seven hours worrying or two or three hours worrying a day, like a lot of time worrying, right? Mm. So I have to say, how much time have you spent over the course of your life worrying unnecessarily about 
things that never actually happened. They'll say, I dread to think mm. is the most common answer I get from people, right? So we usually in therapy will teach people to to really see through that and to learn to snap out of the trance of worry and rumination because it's something that people waste a huge chunk of their lives on. Yeah. It's psychological clutter. And then they'll feel bad and they'll they'll cling on to physical objects as a means of distraction and a form of self-comfort. Mm. But a lot of their emotional problems are, are caused by ruminative thinking or worrying, mm. which is voluntary and they could potentially stop if only they, they understood how and, and if only they, they spotted what was going on. Yeah, I think, you know, the, there is a lot when people are trying to let go and they find it hard, there is a lot of that ruminating happening and a lot of catastrophizing and yeah. um and sort of what if what if this what if that and a lot of the yeah. a lot of the the help that i provide to my clients is actually me saying well what what if it does what what if so so what if you're the only spare yeah. breaks down and, and you've gotten rid of it or what if you do want this in a week's time because that's the thought that comes in the head but what if i need this again one day and so i sort of turn that back and say well what if you know, what if, what if you yeah. do need that? You know, what's, what is, you know, let's think about that. Let's not, not stop at the what if and then allow yeah. that question to dictate yeah. the behavior. Let's answer the question. Like, wh- you know, what is the, what is going to happen? Um, yeah. And that sort of then moves you a bit through more through that process. That's 100%. One of the best therapy techniques in my view. What you're doing is decatastrophizing. Like, so essentially, it's a form of decatastrophizing. So we sometimes say turning what if thinking into so what if thinking. So what if it does happen? Like, mm. let's talk about it. And then the other question that's really good to ask after that is, and then what's probably going to happen next? And then what's mm. probably going to happen? And then what's probably going to happen? And again, like the Stoics, this is about broadening your chronological perspective. Because um, when people worry about things, one of the weird things that no one ever puzzles over, but it's a mystery in broad daylight. When people worry about stuff, how do they decide which segment of time that they're worrying about? So if you're worrying about something that's going to happen, you're going to have to pick a a little chronological time slice. like It's like a movie clip. So I'm worrying about this thing that might happen getting fired right from my job well I'll think about maybe my boss speaking to me and then it kind of ends at the end of that usually the worst part uh, of the incident is where people finish like they're you know they're they're worrying but that's completely arbitrary right you could go well why don't you just think about what's probably going to happen the next day and then the following week and Mm. and the months that follow and then if you do that it forces people to imagine how they're going to cope and recover yeah. Like, but normally they don't do that. So you go, well, you're stopping at the worst part. Mm. Like, and but and purely because you're choosing like an editor, movie editor. You're, you're like you're. It's like you're in the middle of you're making a movie, and it's the big battle scene at the end or whatever. You know, when the the heroes are getting pummeled into the ground, you go, let's just stop there. <laughs> yeah. Like, and then play it again and again and again. We keep stopping at the worst bit when Batman gets punched in the face or whatever it is, right? <laughs> And you think, well, hang on a minute, what happens next, right? Yeah. So worry is like that. There is absolutely no reason why you would stop there. It makes no sense at all, right? Mm. But that's what people do. And again, just again, it's, that's voluntary, right? 
Like it's it's voluntary whether you stop there or you or you just continue the movie and let it run out a little bit further. Yeah. And of course, if you keep going, eventually you're going to have to imagine ways of getting back on your feet. Ah, oh, my girlfriend might dump me. Well, what's probably going to happen next? I'll sit at home and cry in my beer. Like, you know, I'll be, I'll be depressed. And then what's probably going to happen next? Well, I, I don't know. I guess eventually I'll start, like, figuring out, you know, wait, yeah, get, I'll get over it. I'll start meeting. And then what's probably going to happen? Well, I guess I'll find someone else. And then what's probably going to happen? Like, mm. and then that, that forces people to put it in perspective and then also to kind of start coming up with strategies about how they're going to move forward. So that's also one of the simplest and most powerful therapy techniques that people can use. And they can use that on themselves. You know, they don't need to have someone like me or you yeah. sitting across from them and yeah, saying, but it, and now what? Yeah, but it, but it's no. more fun doing it on other people. <laughs> yeah, it, it is much better to have someone. And I've also, another thing I, I do with clients as well is, is I say to them, you know, if you are going to get somebody to come and help you do your decluttering and that mm-hmm. person, you're, and you are afraid that that person is going to, take over and make you throw things Mm -hmm. away that you don't want to throw away or they're going to deceive you or they're going to judge you or belittle you in whatever way i say you know if Mm -hmm. if you do want that person to help you then you need to to give them a a job to do and the best job you can give that person is to ask you questions like and then what (laughs) and then what Mm -hmm. you know because then they've Mm -hmm. got someone to bounce and there's that person is not telling them what to do but it is forcing them like you're saying it's forcing them past the end of the the story that they're telling themselves into yeah. the future and forcing them to actually consider that. And and like you're saying, then these thoughts are they're they're voluntary, but did you say was the word voluntary that you used? Um they're but they're yeah. not actually necessarily deliberate. So it's not like we're saying people deliberately go, I'm gonna worry myself now into a froth. They're not gonna it's not like that kind of deliberate, but it is controllable. Like they have the ability to control this. Yeah. Um, and, it's controllable. And so, yeah. But the reason for that is that the the worry I should clarify that, you know, that this is actually probably the most helpful way of explaining it. So if you have involuntary, automatic, let's say, and voluntary thoughts, what, what usually happens is there's an automatic thought that pops into your mind spontaneously, mm-hmm. or it could be something external. It could be something you hear on TV or see or somebody else says. Yep. And that tends to then trigger a chain reaction of voluntary thoughts. So you uh-huh. you suddenly think, oh, sheesh, what if this happens? And then you, you'll make the mistake of voluntarily, you get duped. It's like someone insults you and you start arguing with them. Uh, yeah. And you think, yeah, but you didn't, you didn't have, you could have just walked away. Mm, right? You get sucked into like that part. that you go, thought. It was not my fault. He insulted me. Like, and you go, yeah, but you could have walked away from it, right? Mm-hmm. So the, you underestimate the extent to which you could have stopped the sequence. Mm. Like, and it takes practice to do that. But you don't control the beginning. You don't control the automatic thought, but you do control what happens next, mm. like how you then choose to, to respond to it. And, the and Stoics, that takes effort. Stoics called that the impressions, didn't they? Yeah, these yeah. automatic impressions mm. um, that pop into your mind. And they say to them, they have what we, uh, I mean, this is jargon, but we use the word metacognition, like which is, in psychology is like a trendy buzzword, right? <laughs> and cognition just means thinking, right? So metacognition means thoughts about thoughts. So you have thoughts uh, yeah. about lots of things, right? You've got thoughts about Santa Claus. You've got thoughts about Donald Trump. 
you know, you've got thoughts about jellyfish. (laughs) You've got so many thoughts. But weirdly, you also have thoughts about your own thinking. Mm. You have thoughts about the nature of belief and thinking itself. And so, like, our attitude towards our own thinking is really important. So I should say one of the first things we do in kind of cutting-edge state-of-the-art psychotherapy is when clients are worrying and ruminating, which is virtually all clients, like you, you would say to them, do you, to what extent do you believe that this worrying rumination is helpful is the first mm-hmm. question. Because if you believe it's helpful, you're going to carry on doing it, right? So then the therapist needs to challenge the evidence for that and get people to really evaluate the longer-term consequences, for example. And then the other common thing is to say, do you, to what extent do you believe it's out of your control? But when people are, are really struggling, they'll go, I can't control it. And they're wrong about that normally, right? So Mm. usually we have to challenge that, disprove it to them, teach them ways of gaining more control. But those are beliefs about their thinking process itself, that worrying is helpful and or that it's uncontrollable. Mm. Um, Whereas if you see it as unhelpful and under your control, then it's a lot easier for you to stop Changes doing everything. it. everything, yeah. I mean, it's still not yeah. not like going to happen immediately, but it's going to be at least it's achievable or more achievable. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's so interesting, isn't it? And um, and I this is where sort of I really wanted to have a chat about, you know, this really ancient philosophy and just how relevant yeah. it is today and how relevant it's... it is to, to all of us um, because... It... I joke about it and I say ancient greek philosophy it's the future um (laughs) but i it's so weird because i i say that as a joke but honestly i'm really involved in i think it's actually not so funny (laughs) it's actually really there's a lot of yeah yeah makes sense i mean it literally right that you wouldn't believe how much stuff there is going on like interest from government bodies from psychological research in stoicism at the moment Mm. like you know it's a really a really big deal and the pandemic not only the pandemic has has triggered a lot of that um modern research and psychology is fueling it but also even what just happened in u.s politics the storming of the the capitol building Mm. in america has triggered uh, a lot of a renewed interest in stoic philosophy straight for a bunch of reasons like so stoicism is incredibly topical it's like at the moment we keep thinking we may have, because I'm a, the founding member of the Modern Stoicism organization, which is a, an international non profit organization. It's run by a multidisciplinary team of volunteers. So it's a philanthropic organization that kind of spreads information, does research on Stoicism. Mm-hmm. And we started it in 2012. It was founded by Chris Gill, who's Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought at Exeter University, right? So a little bit of potted history, right? But the point is, we thought ages ago that maybe we'd reached peak Stoic. Like, we thought, this is as stoic as it gets. Like, you know, we've got, we had something like 8,000 people do our online course one year, and we, we kind of thought that, I think this is you know, all the publicity we're going to get from the media. Like, it's it kind of blew up, and we kind of think now, you know, maybe people will move on to the next thing. Like, it just keeps growing every year. Mm. And uh, especially since the pandemic, there's always something that comes along that, you know, causes you know, another surge of interest in stoicism. Yeah. And, you know, even the publishing industry were telling me they have data that they keep showing me that books on stoicism, like the, like you've just bought a bunch of books on stoicism. <laughs> I did. Like yeah. during the pandemic, everyone's buying books on stoicism. 
you know, like uh, it, it's, it's amazing. Like, so people are just getting into it. You're not, you're not too mm. late. It's, it's still growing. Yeah, yeah, and this is what I know. And here I am thinking, yeah, that everyone already knew all this, and and that art was just a bit slow. And I think that yeah, and and it's not actually even in the media like philosophy. Have you seen the show The Good Place? Have you heard of it? Oh, I've heard of it. I don't watch yeah. that. Here's a declaring fact: I don't watch TV. Yeah, I don't have a TV. Well, it's it's basically um, it's a, a, a sort of a, a comedy show, and the core part of it is a study of philosophy and the ethics of yeah. of what it means to be a good person, and yeah. it's sort of all it's wrapped up in comedy and ridiculousness and all of that kind of stuff as well. But it's it's sort of there's lots of mentions of mod, mostly moral philosophy, um, but lots of you know mentions of philosophers and. Again, I think possibly is responsible for a little bit of, of interest in in ancient philosophy as well. Is that you know they've they've made it relevant to us, you know, mm. and you know with with everything that's happening in the world at the moment, people are searching for something to help them cope. They're searching for something to help them be a better person. They're moving away from religion, yeah. um, and they're 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 wanting they're looking for something else. And and I can identify with yeah. that. You know, like I was saying, I sort of have been on like a bit of a journey to to find something that that I can ground myself in. And not being a religious mm. person, that doesn't that doesn't appeal to me at all. The idea of of worshiping a deity, it doesn't fit with my who I like the way I was raised, uh-huh. which is scientifically. My dad was a scientist. Um, it sort of mm-hmm. doesn't fit with that, and and just it's who I am doesn't fit with that. Which and it's fine for other people. That's cool, but it didn't suit me. And so I think that mm-hmm. philosophy, you know, if you are more secular, secular philosophy does provide yeah. what religion does without the religion <laughs> sort of it. And it's and this is where yeah. again stoicism has great appeal because it's practical. And like you were saying, it seems weird to. The philosophers, um, or the people that study philosophy now, that people would be interested in a, a way of living, mm-hmm. you know. But just the fact that you know, one of the things that appealed to me, and I haven't got that far in your—it's the How to Live Like a Roman Emperor—is the one I'm halfway through of your books. I read fully read mm-hmm. the other one, um, and in it, you know, you did talk. You well, actually, I might be wrong about which book it is, so correct me if I'm wrong. But there's a, a like a mm-hmm. morning meditation. And then there are actions uh-huh. during the day, and then there is an evening meditation, and that's yeah. really practical. That's something that we can we can grasp onto. So that's how I want to finish off yeah. this um, interview because mm-hmm. we have gone for <laughs> way longer than we normally do. But that's cool. You and I talk as much as you, Tara and I talk. But I wanted to finish on what are some little things, maybe some routines or some rituals that people uh-huh. could build into their day that could help them maybe. Um, end up a little bit closer to that um, living in, um, in accordance with nature? Well, they, the Stoics actually borrow the thing that you're talking about from an older school of philosophy mm-hmm. called Pythagoreanism, which is pre-Socratic, incidentally. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's this hugely influential concept that's in an ancient poem called The Golden Verses of Pythagoras, right? And it influenced the Stoics and other schools of philosophy. So the Stoics borrowed this like from another school of philosophy. Incidentally, you know, we were watching in the news the the storming of the Capitol. Those people, bit of trivia for you, that stormed the US Capitol, marched down Pennsylvania Avenue, past the Trump International Hotel, which outside it has a statue of Benjamin Franklin, 
who what his there's a Ben Franklin watched all these mm. rioters watch march down the street past him. Ben Franklin used this method. He wrote uh, in his autobiography about how integral it was to his uh, moral worldview and his own personal development. Mm. And so the Pythagorean method consists in every morning preparing yourself for the day ahead, asking yourself what you could do that would actually contribute to living in accord with your values. Like, so what can I do today? What Franklin said, what good can I do today? Mm-hmm. You know, Marcus Aurelius would say, what can I do today that serves eudaimonia, that contributes towards my fundamental goal of flourishing and well-being? Um, and he, the Stoics also say, you know, they anticipate what could go wrong. So Marcus says every morning when you get up, tell yourself you're going to meet meddlesome people, treacherous people, liars, and that's okay. Like I can cope with it. Mm-hmm. So Stoics prepare in advance for coping with adversity so they're not surprised for it. Each morning when you get up, tell yourself there's going to be a pandemic today <laughs> or something like that. Something, <laughs> Some horrible thing's going to happen in the news, and that's okay. Yeah. I can deal with it. So they prepare for these things in advance. And then at the end of the day, um, the Golden Verses of Pythagoras actually puts it very beautifully. It says, before you close your eyes, three times, review the main events of the day and ask yourself three questions. And those three questions are, what have I done well? What have I done badly? And what could I do differently next time? Or what did I neglect to do? Right. And so we Seneca writes about this in his book on anger, another Stoic philosopher. And he says, you, you're interrogating yourself but you have to do it like you're a friend. You have to do it compassionately, not aggressively, right? right? So as if yeah. you're you're trying to help a child right, or a mm-hmm. friend. And, and he said, Seneca says he does this every evening. And uh, Epictetus, we mentioned earlier, one of the Stoic teachers uh, tells the students to do this. So asking yourself, okay, what did I do today that actually contributed to my well-being or was in accord with the virtues? What did I do that led in the opposite direction? that maybe I should be careful to avoid doing next time? And was there anything that I neglected to do that I could have done, that I had the opportunity to do, that I missed out on? And so this is what I would call a learning cycle, because the next morning when you wake up, you can think, oh, yeah, remember yesterday when I was telling myself I need to put more effort into uh, moderation or I need to, uh, you know, show more compassion to my friends or whatever. So you prepare for the day ahead with that in mind. And then the next evening, again, you review how well you did. So it's like a constant learning cycle. Mm. And that's how Ben Franklin describes it as well. Like that little structure, I consider it a framework. So all the therapy techniques you do can be contained within that little framework. But that little cycle of reflecting on your own progress, mm. you do that, you don't need to pay for it. You can save yourself a fortune in psychotherapy <laughs> bills. I'm Honestly, I shouldn't be telling you this because I'm doing myself out of a job, right? But, you know, I'm, I'm old now and I don't need the money, in, you know, like, so I, I, don't, I don't really mind. But I don't, I hope, don't let the other psychotherapists hear this, right? Because they'll, <laughs> they'll give me into trouble. Yeah. But if you, do, if you do this, you won't need to, you know, you won't need to spend thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on expensive psychotherapy and you could do something better with your time mm. you won't have to sit in a you won't have to sit in a a, a, a musty little room uh <laughs> you know in a chaise long or whatever talking to a stranger you know just just do this read books on stoicism 
And, uh, you know, that'll, that'll help you. But that's the framework. It's a cycle every morning, every evening, every evening reviewing your progress, every morning planning the day ahead. Yeah. Well, that is an excellent place to finish because it gives somebody, gives our listeners something concrete that they can hang on to um, and something mm-hmm. that they can actually do immediately apart from buying your books and doing what I've done yeah. and, you know, binging on books on stoicism. Uh, they can actually, you know, just do that simple thing and and see how that, that helps them. Uh, they could combine that with journaling if they wanted to. You know, they, they could write this down or they could, like you said, just they could just meditate on it. Um, but it is something that they can do. So thank you so much. Um, I've really enjoyed this. And as you, you've probably figured out, I'm definitely a big fan of stoicism and I, I don't think I'm going anywhere. And you'll probably see me pop up on your Instagram every now and then. <laughs> commenting cool. and liking and, and all of that kind of you're stuff. Part of, you'll become part of what I like to call the stoic fam. That makes oh. my daughter cringe when I say that. Like, <laughs> it is such a, stoic, it's an old part, person thing the to stoic say. stoic fam. Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my daughter. How old is your daughter? She's nine. Nine, yeah. Oh, mine, mine are teenagers, yeah. so they cringe even more than a nine-year-old would at things that I say. So, yeah. Yeah, we, we 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 exist to embarrass our children, don't we? Yeah, that's for sure. But my little girl's actually quite into stoicism, strangely. She loves Socrates. Oh. Like, I think that's her favourite philosopher. Yeah, and Diogenes the Cynic, another philosopher she really likes. I think I read that that you read that you do tell her stories. Um, was that you that tells her lots of stories about? Yeah, she has some. She, I I got her some kids' books about stoicism, and she did um, little videos reviewing them. Uh, she got a book about Socrates and one about Diogenes the Cynic, actually. That's so cool. She did the video book reviews and one on a book about Stoicism, actually, for kids. Oh, that's really cool. Maybe also we need to list the books on Stoicism for kids because that might feel more approachable for some adults as well that are a little bit scared of reading um, reading some complex philosophy. The Diogenes the Cynic ones are good. He's actually like, he's a dog because oh. his name means the dog. But it's a metaphor, right? I think my little girl was a little bit disappointed when she discovered that he wasn't actually a dog. <laughs> Because like, in the comic, in the kids' book, he is literally a dog. Yeah. Like so that that's like you know that might be that might be one for people like to Google. Yeah. Or, or get it on Amazon. Yeah, I'll look it up. Okay, thank you very much, and uh, I really appreciate you coming to chat. And um, it's been a long one, so I, I again appreciate you making the time today, and even changing your normal routine for me because of our time zones. Mm-hmm. So I do appreciate your flexibility with that. Sorry, it's been a pleasure. If you would like to know more about Donald Robertson, and I would be surprised if you didn't, given he's so fascinating and knowledgeable, uh, you can just visit donaldrobertson.name and that will basically send you to all of the socials that he has. Uh, You will be able to see his books and read up on him and all that kind of stuff. So that will get you started. You can also look in Amazon or other booksellers for um, Donald Robertson and you will find his books listed there as well. So thanks for tuning in. And if you've got anything that you would like to share with us about this episode, then please do in our Facebook community group and we will see you here next week. Thanks for joining us. We'd love it if you'd leave a review or tell all your friends about us so they too can be uncluttered. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us at beuncluttered.com.au or on social media or on our own websites at clearspace.net.au and basklifecoaching.com.